Welcome back to episode five of our wellness podcast, where we talk about all kinds of topics related to health and wellness on FNM's campus. I'm Katherine Warner, and I'm joined by my co-host Susan Knoll. Today, our episode title is Racism and Mental Health, where we'll talk about the impact of racism on mental health on campus and things that we can do about this impact. Um, We have a really special guest today who Susan will introduce in a moment. This guest has been on our campus virtually last year and is back this semester, and we'll have an exciting announcement about how students can um, work with our guest, and she'll actually be here this February. So Susan, do you want to go ahead and introduce our guest today? Great. I have the great pleasure of introducing Amanda Davis Bowie. Amanda is the founder of Strength, Love, and Motivation in based out of Harrisburg. And a little bit about her, um, she is in her third year of a doctoral program working toward a doctor of philosophy degree in counselor education and supervision with a specialization in consultation. She also has her master's degree in counseling and is a licensed professional counselor, a national certified counselor, and a licensed behavioral specialist. Um, Amanda, we're really happy to have you and so grateful for your time today. Um, Our first question is about strength, love, and motivation. Can you tell us a little bit about your center? I can. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to be here and having this opportunity to speak with y'all. So strength, love, and motivation. I worked for a program for about 11 years, and I loved working with the children that was on my caseload. But the paperwork and a lot of the mess that went on behind the scenes was, um, it was just kind of devastating (laughs) to my psyche. So after a while, I I knew that I wanted to start my own practice. I just didn't know when and how it was going to happen. So whenever I decided to go back to school, my husband was like, you know what, this is a really good time for you to think about leaving this particular organization and maybe starting your own thing. So I said, I love the way you think. I think it's a really good idea. Um, and I knew what I wanted to do because I love helping people. Like that has just been my thing as far as serving people in the capacity of counseling. Like I knew that's where I wanted to, what I wanted to do, but I just wasn't sure how I was going to make it happen. And I also wanted to make sure I didn't have, I wanted to do what I wanted to do and not have to work under the restrictions of an agency or organization. And I didn't want to have to do with the paperwork. So the best way to make that happen was to create strength, love, and motivation. Um, I was sitting braiding one of my daughter's hair, and the other daughter was taking her braids out so that I could redo them. And I'm like, girls, what is a really good name for this? Like, what are you thinking? And um, we were just talking about what we wanted to be able to give our people through this practice. And we came up with strength. We came up with love. And we're like, and we definitely want to motivate them so that they can reach their full potential. And it kind of flowed. And we're like, all right, we're going to do strength, love, and motivation. So that's how we came up with our name. And it has been wonderful ever since. I feel like we've been very blessed um, since we created the website and actually put a message on Facebook saying, okay, y'all, we're doing this. We're open. We're running. The clients have not stopped. So I can imagine it's been a blessing. (laughs) It's been a blessing. And when did you start? When did this, your center start? We started in 2017. Um, We actually, well, the conversations started in 2017. March of 2018 is when I I accepted my first client. Wow, that's amazing. Um, And I can only imagine you just, yeah, like you were saying, like the clients are probably not stopping. I think um, 
one thing that I don't think is surprising to any of us on this call is just that how hard it is to find therapists of color and counselors of color and licensed professional mental health um, people of color. And so I think you're, you're, I, you're filling in a gap that's so needed. Um, so really excited to also talk about the CELA program. So CELA is like our baby. Um, so CELA is a Hebrew word and it means pause. So we thought it would be the perfect word to use for the program that we wanted to develop because what we want is for the students to be able to really just take a pause in life because just in general, life is go, go, go. But in college, they don't get a minute to breathe, whether they're an athlete, whether they're in theater, whether whatever program they're in, or maybe they're just a student who's focusing solely on academics. The classes alone are enough to keep them so that their mind never gets to stop. So we wanted to provide a place for them to pause. Um, it's an acronym for students engaged in listening and hope. And we were very particular, even when, and this was my husband and I, we came up with the CELA because we were trying to figure out what we wanted the students to be able to do within this program. And we want them to be able to pause. We want them to be able to listen to others and we want them to be engaged and we want them to leave feeling very hopeful. Um, we recognized that we were targeting a population of students that most likely were going to be feeling very exhausted whenever they came and joined this group. So being able to come into a room where you feel very safe, being able to come into a space where you know that you can share openly, you don't have to hold back, there's no code switching, there's nothing. We don't have any expectations of you other than just to come in here and breathe. And that's the environment, like that's what our goal is whenever we set up um, Selah. And it's, it's kind of, um, transitioned into two different things. So we can have it so that literally the students come in, they just sit, they talk, they might ask questions, or we can have it so that they can come in and we present something to them to share information with them and teach them some tools to help them manage the stress that they endure while they're on campus or in school period. So it can kind of show up in two different ways, depending on the need. I love that. And I feel like the question that I have in my head is maybe two, hopefully not three questions at once. But as you were talking, I thought, I think it's, you know, I love that story of you braiding your daughter's hair. And I imagine that when you were doing this, it's more was individual counseling. Is that right in the beginning or working with yes. clients one-on-one? -on -one? And then, so I guess I'm interested at what point, because I, when I met you, it was through, I actually do want to give a shout out to peer health educator, Hermela Asafa, because she introduced me to you. And in my head, you were like an educator and came to college mm -hmm. campuses. So it's interesting sort of hearing the backstory and learning more since then that you do one-on-one -on -one counseling. But I guess this, this question in my head is how did you pivot to doing education? What did that look like? Um, and anything you can talk about, about the need you saw, especially to create these spaces specifically for students of color. Right. So I was blessed enough to develop a group of friends um, in the area that also worked either in education or also therapists. So we would meet monthly and just kind of have conversations. And my one friend, and I'm going to give a shout out, her name is Dr. Renata Williams. She's awesome. And um, Renata at the time was working at an institution and they were in dire need of something like this. And she said, what do you think about coming out and talking to our kids? And 
just a little bit of a backstory. So my background <clears throat> is in athletics. I worked as an athletic assistant to our athletic advisor in my undergrad. And then in grad school, I, she had transitioned to a higher position at a different university. So I followed her and worked over there in athletics. So I've always had a special place in my heart for college athletes. So college is definitely where I wanted to kind of end up. Um, so when she presented the opportunity to come in and work with her students, I'm like, oh my goodness, yes, let's do this. So we went and we developed a program there where we were able to engage with the students. And that's kind of what, how it birthed, it birthed from there, I'll put it that way. Um, but it's been, we just never looked back because the need was so great. And I don't know, word spreads, I guess, and, and, and students talk. So from one university to another university, it was like, oh, we have this. Well, how come we don't have that? Well, we need this too. So who do we need to talk to to make this happen? And a lot of my staff, I have a very young staff, thank goodness, because they still have their college experiences very fresh in their mind. And they're like, you know what? Can we do this? Because this is needed. So everything happens for a reason. I'm a really big uh, believer in that. And that's kind of how it came with I was just going to say, um, I think what I like about like what you're saying in the program that you have is like you have this individual component to it, like the individual uh, counseling and the need to have those private spaces to share what your specific, you know, background is and what you're struggling with personally, but then also this, this other part of joining with others in your community um, and finding like the collective, um, you know, um, empowerment, right? It's like, so I think what you're doing is really unique to have both of those components through strength, love, and motivation. Um, I'm really excited that, should we announce now that we're we're going to be doing the um, CELA? Yeah. So um, just for, for students who are listening and others who are listening, we're really excited to announce that we'll be hosting CELA over the course of three months beginning in February. So it'll be February 21, March 7, and then March 28 for an hour each time. And uh, we'll be sending out a sign-up sheet for, for students who are interested and um, trying to figure out still if it's gonna be in person or virtually. So that's really exciting. Um, Amanda, it's again, it's probably not a surprise to a lot of us that mental health issues have really just skyrocketed and gone through. I mean, that was true before COVID. And our counseling center here has been almost filled to the brim uh, for several years now. And then after, after COVID, it really uh, ballooned even more. But in what ways um, does do race and identity uh, exacerbate like already existing mental health issues and kind of interact with mental health in general? Oh my goodness, in so many ways. Um, so I was speaking to a young lady actually last night and I was talking to her about her college experience at a PWI and um, she was sharing that she felt like she was always under attack. She said physically, academically, emotionally um, and some and it was interesting because her story wasn't unique. Like this is something that I hear very frequently from the students that I have the privilege of being able to engage with. And they just describe themselves, and I can say they, but I can even speak from my own personal experience. College was, I remember college well enough to know and, and still um, can recall the experience. You do kind of feel like you're under a microscope. And every piece of your identity is kind of being picked apart. You know, whether it's, oh my goodness, your hair is so cute. Can I touch it? 
or this class is being utilized to rule out the weak ones while the instructor is making direct eye contact with you, the only black student in the classroom. Um, just those types of things. So you always feel like you, you become very paranoid in a way. And it's not, it's not healthy in any way, shape or form to have to really walk through life full time feeling that way outside of whenever you are able to get to the privacy of your own room. And even with that, if you've been assigned a roommate that maybe is someone of a different culture or doesn't look like you or doesn't have the same beliefs that you do and things of that nature, you may still feel like you have to be guarded. So when do you have an opportunity to really, so to speak, let your hair down and just breathe? You don't get it very often. So that takes a toll on your mental health as a whole. Um, there's so many different dynamics that come into play with it. And I think just really trying to find your space and it's bad enough that you're a college student, your brain isn't fully developed and you're already in search of your true identity. But now as you're searching for your true identity, you also have to be guarded in the process. Um, when we speak a little bit more um, technically, when we think about like uh, paranoid schizophrenia, one of the symptoms of that or one of the triggers, so to speak, is living in a area or in a neighborhood where you are the minority, it increases your level of paranoia. So if you take that into consideration, if you're going to a predominantly white institution as a, a student of color and you're there for those four years, you pretty much have moved into this new neighborhood and you're the only one there or one of the very few people in this neighborhood who look like you. So if you're constantly walking in that state of um, just, I don't want to use guarded again, but I can't think of another one to use, but just really that it's escalated. You had like this escalate, your cortisol levels have, are increased because you're just not sure. And sometimes you think, oh, it's just me. Um, I went to a university and 18 years later, I took my daughter to this university for her to go on a visit. And I love my um, alma mater. And uh, after the visit, we're like, oh, what do you think? And my husband and I, we both went to the school. So we're all excited thinking, you know, maybe she'll go there. And she's like our legacy child here. And she's like, mm, I felt like everybody was staring at me. This is 18 years later. And I'm like, well, they were. <laughs> because we're the only black family walking around right here. But yeah, they were. And she's like, I don't want to go to school and feel like people are staring at me. Now, she still ended up at an institution with, with about 5% Black, and people are still staring at her, but it was a much larger one, so she felt like things might be a little bit different, but she still finds herself in this place of isolation. And isolation and mental health, they don't go well together. It really affects the mental health on, and on every capacity. So the way race plays into that is huge. Just I, I very quickly uh, mentioned the um, code switching. Code switching in and of itself is exhausting. That affects everything. Um, so when we talk about mental health, one of the things that we want to do is incorporate, you know, some self-care, definitely some love for ourselves. We also want to incorporate just being able to find like a real healthy medium day to day. And if you can't find, if you can't find a way to stabilize and secure yourself, there's no way you're going to be able to create that balance in, you, in your life that you need in order to have that very healthy mental health. So I think it, it has everything to do with everything. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm not sure if we might get into this a little bit later, but when I was thinking about us talking today, one of the things that kept coming to mind for me was race norming and how race norming plays such a role in just the systemic racism that exists in all capacities within our country, but even in the college system. 
it comes into play. And if you have individuals who still believe in race norming and they do exist, imagine how that will affect the way your papers are graded. Imagine how that's gonna affect the way you are um, seen whenever you go and apply for a job on campus or just anywhere. Like that's just one of so many different things that are utilizing an assessment tool that affects each of the people who are um, engaging. So there's a whole lot of things, a lot of things. I'm actually not familiar with the concept of race norming. What, what is that? So it's also called race correction. It's an ethnic adjustment or a race adjustment. So it's been integrated into like medical tools. So for instance, if you go to the hospital and you think you have a kidney stone, there's like a, a calculator they'll use. It's called a kidney stone risk calculator, um, the oncology risk assessment tool, and they'll use it. And it's it will put in certain points for certain categories. And race is one of the categories. Why wouldn't we all get the same amount of points? Why is it different, right? Because in some medical books, you'll still find that black people have a, a higher pain tolerance. You know how difficult it is for a, a I wanna say, I don't know if large is the right word, but maybe a very tall and, and very strong black man to get pain medicine after a surgery as compared to a white man who may be of smaller stature. Oh, you're big, you can handle it. Even with black women, you wanna talk about like um, um, our birth rates and things of that nature. Like it's less likely that a minority will receive the same level of pain management as, a, as someone of the majority. And a lot of that comes from the race norming. And sadly, yes, it's still in some medical books, which is really kind of crazy. Um, so they might call it race correction, but pretty much it just perpetuates a race-based inequity and it relies on stereotypes about people of color. And um, it prevents sometimes patients from even receiving adequate care. So it's very disturbing. You just brought up so many good points and I feel like getting it gets really at the heart of a lot of this and one of the things I wrote it down that struck me was the it's just me feeling I think mm -hmm. that that feeling of you're going through your day you're experiencing racism you're experiencing also all of these other things of being in college and then feeling alone and feeling isolated and it, it just kind of struck me how that sort of adds to the importance of spaces like CELA where students of color, where it is only for students of color and it's a time to process some of these effects. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about the impact you see of having spaces like this as you, you know, you have done this just once at FNM, you're gonna do it again, but I know that you've done this at other college campuses. Um, yeah, I wonder what you think about A, the importance of these kinds of spaces and B, any impacts that you've seen um, in your work. Sure. So the importance, I think it's very significant and I think it's very necessary. I also think on some levels, it's still controversial because we want integration. We want everyone to be able to come together and, you know, kumbaya, but we also know the reality of the situation. And often what I will hear is, well, why are you creating this space only for students of color? What about other students? All students need this. And sometimes I don't think people recognize that for the majority population, if you wanna be surrounded by people who look like you, you can go to the grocery store, right? <laughs> Whereas it is very difficult for a minority, especially on a PWI campus, to be able to find a space where they 100% can feel comfortable, meaning, 
and I, I'm always going to go back to that code switching piece because I think it's huge. I don't think um, everyone has a understanding of the amount of energy that it goes into not being able to say something the way that you typically would or not even wearing something that you would typically wear or maybe walk the way you would typically walk. It could be something as simplistic as, as movement. Um, so having a safe space where someone can come and truly be themselves is essential to everything, especially their mental health. And that's where I'm coming from. I'm biased. When we are talking about mental health, I'm always going to go there because that's, that's my world. Um, but as far as the feedback that we've gotten, phenomenal feedback. So the students who participate typically want to know, okay, so now these are finished, what else are we going to do? Or what's next? Or how can we keep this space so that I can have this to always come back to? Um, we spoke about this briefly. There was like this TikTok that was out and it was um, a young woman in the multicultural center and she stood up and announced, there's too many white people in here. I need y'all to leave. Like this is a space for, you know, black students. And again, it was one of those like, what's the right thing to do in a situation like that? Because again, we want people to be able to come together, learn from each other, grow from each other. Like ultimately that is the case, but can we really learn and can we really grow if we are mentally exhausted, our cortisol levels are elevated and we're always in this state of feeling like we're under a microscope? No, nothing good can come from that. If anything, you're gonna get a lot of reactions and not a lot of responses. And we know that reactions usually don't have the most positive outcomes. What we want is a response because if they're responding, then they're taking that time to think before they act, think before they speak. But it's very difficult to do that if you're not in the right state of mind. I was really struck by last week when we were talking in preparation for this interview. Um, Amanda, when you were talking about even just the decision-making process of coming to a place like Franklin and Marshall or a historically white institution for students of color and, and um, the mental toll that can take, um, can you talk about that a little bit more about around decision-making of where you're going, but even before you come to campus? Yeah. Thank you for um, bringing that up because it is, it is huge. Um, so I, we started, my daughter had made a TikTok whenever she was trying to make a decision of where to go to school. And it was like, should I go to a HBCU or a PWI? And it was interesting because a lot of her friends who are white had no idea what either were. <laughs> they were like, well, where's HBCU? And she's like, mm, and she had to teach them on what that meant. But it is such a difficult, difficult decision to make because you have to choose between, all right, if I go to a PWI, it's going to set me up for reality. It's going to set me up for the world that I'm going to be dropped into once I graduate. Um, and it's going to prepare me in a way that I need so that if I do decide to join the corporate world, I know what to do. I know what's expected so I can be successful. But it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost of living four years under a microscope and, and not really being able to feel like you belong. And we know how important belonging is. On the other side of that, we can choose an HBCU. And we can be in a setting where the majority of the people there are gonna look like us. But we also know, first off, the HBCU typically isn't as well respected by employers. If I turn in my application and my application says one thing on there and your application says another thing on there, the school that quote unquote holds the most clout, if everything else is the same, is typically gonna be the one that's chosen. And the HBCU is usually not seen in the same light. So that, that's a disadvantage. I'm hoping that that changes, but as of right now, that's a disadvantage. The other thing is 
it's almost like you're in a cocoon for four years, right? So when you leave, you're almost going to have to go into this place of shock. It's like, oh, the world does look different. I don't have these same cushions that are kind of set in place for me and I'm not comfortable anymore. So you would have to go through some type of mental transition, just leaving that type of institution and stepping out into the real world. And that can be a disadvantage for you. So there's a lot of pros and cons that you have to play with whenever you're making those decisions. Another pro that has been said is when else in your life as a black person, are you going to get an opportunity to be surrounded by people who look like you outside of those four years? I don't know the answer to that question. So that's very um, enticing for a lot of people. This is the only opportunity I'm going to get. And I don't know if either of you have ever been in a situation where you were the sole person or one of very few among a, a group of minorities. It feels different. It really does feel different. I had one um, young lady share a story with me once. And she was a white woman who had traveled abroad and was studying in Japan. And she was a minority. And she said she got on the, um, I think it was the subway once, and the woman looked up at her and grabbed her purse and held it tight to her chest and would not let her sit beside her. And she just talked about how awful it made her feel. And she was sharing this with me because she was saying that she feels like that was probably the only true experience that she had of what it may feel like to be a minority in our country. And I, I'm glad that she was able to make that connection. I'm not glad that she had to have that experience, but not many people get to have that experience and, and, and are able to make that connection. So I thought it was very powerful. It's not a fun way to live at all. But that's what we're doing. We're doing though, right? Because we're working to change it. That's right. Yeah, and that leads really well into our next question, which is maybe a question all of us can think about because I feel like we have some answers around this. But, you know, I love... I love that we can at FNM bring you all in and provide this space for students. I think it's really important. Um, but a lot of the things that we've been talking about are issues that are beyond that. You know, you talked about race norming and how that happens in the classroom and the impact of that. And I, I just, you know, I wonder, and Susan, you're, you're a social worker and Amanda as, you know, a mental health expert, what can we do as a PWI as a community to create more equitable mental health? I think this is a question that a lot of people, I don't know, they care about, but we don't always get right in how we try to answer it. So I just wonder if we could talk about that a little bit. When you said that, one of the first things I thought about is the recognition piece. I think that's really important in recognizing what's happening and how it's happening. Um, one of the things that we see very frequently, there's a doctor, his name is Dr. Um, Sue. He is a professor at Columbia and he did a study at Columbia and he was studying microaggressions. So he goes into a classroom because he wanted to see how the microaggressions were being demonstrated from the students to the um, students of color. And what they found were, it was more the professors that were exhibiting microaggressions towards the students than it was the students to the students. Uh, microaggressions, there are those like really everyday slight indignities or put downs or insults. And sometimes people don't even realize they're doing it. That's why we have implicit versus explicit bias. We'll talk about that later. But people don't even realize that they're doing it. Um, but typically, it's something that's projected toward a marginalized group. And people experience these every day. 
and they're very small, but it's like one of those things, if somebody stabs you enough with a, a tiny needle, it's gonna start hurting and eventually you're gonna start bleeding. And that's how microaggressions I feel work. So the answer to those are micro interventions. <laughs> and a lot of people heard of microaggressions, but the micro interventions are what we want because those are the everyday works or deeds whether they're intentional or, or, or unintentional, that communicates to the targets of the microaggressions. So in the classroom, let's say the professor says something that's insensitive and the student is sitting there and the student is thinking to themselves, did she just say that? Like, really? And it's like, maybe, maybe it's me. Maybe I received it wrong and it didn't really happen. And maybe the student beside that student turns and looks and just gives them the look like, no, they said that, like, it's not just you, like this, that, that really happened. And that in itself, it's like just that look, no words being said, that's a micro intervention because you now have created that, you know, community, so to speak, as far as I got you, I'm here with you. I heard that it wasn't right. And then maybe after class, they may approach the professor together, or maybe they just need to talk about it so they can feel better and then decide what they want to do from there. But just the acknowledgement, something that, that tiny, so validation, is huge. And I think that's what happens with the micro intervention. The other way micro interventions work is having the student who maybe is of the majority population approach that professor after class without the student that was offended saying, you know, I heard the statement. I'm not sure what you meant by it, but this is kind of how it came across, right? As long as they feel safe in doing so, you definitely want to make sure you feel safe before you ever engage in anything like this. But if it, they feel safe in doing so, that's great. And I don't know if that would be a micro or a micro or a macro intervention at that point, because they're confronting them um, respectfully head on, but it's powerful. It's really, really powerful. So those are the types of things that I want everyone to do. Um, there's another term that we like to use in some of our trainings. We call it color brave. A lot of people will say they're colorblind. I don't see color. Da, da, da. That can be another, another conversation too. But the other side of that, I feel like is being color brave. And the example that I gave of the student going up and talking to the professor, again, I think that's a good example of being color brave as well, because it allows you to be able to use the privilege that you do have to be able to help those who don't have that same level of privilege. And again, it's scary, it's risky, but it's so necessary. And even on the other side of that, if everybody is open enough and understanding enough and patient enough and compassionate enough to be able to say, none of us are perfect, we're gonna make mistakes and we're all learning. I, I swear I learn something new every day. I'm like, for real, that's what that means? Okay, thank you for letting me know. So as long as we're open and know that we're all learning and willing to hear each other, I think we'll be able to make progress a little bit faster too. So quickly we find ourselves offended. Why are we offended? Like, it's not about trying to offend you. It's about teaching you so that it doesn't happen again and no one else is injured in any way, shape, or form, right? If I tell you that you have something in your teeth, are you going to be offended? Right? So it, it's kind of like that. Like if we think about it in, the, in, in that, that way, right? It's just like I'm trying to tell you, you have something in your teeth. That's it. I'm helping you. <laughs> Next time you smile, I want it to be big and pretty and I don't want anything in there that's going to distract anyone. So that's how I try to think of it. I love that micro. I mean, I'm 
very familiar with microaggressions, but I don't know if I've ever heard the word microinterventions. And I like that concept because I think sometimes for people, they can get overwhelmed by like, I want to do something and I want it to be big. And, but I like the idea that we can do small things. And I know exactly what you mean of that feeling of being in a room and someone says something and you think it's messed up, but you're not sure. And then somebody looks at you and you're like, oh yeah, that was messed up. And that is a powerful moment, even though it's, it is so, so small. So yeah, I like this idea of that we can, as much as when microaggressions build up, they have this huge impact. I like the idea that kind of the mirror image of that is there's an opportunity for these small acts to also build up. Yes. You had talked about um, implicit and explicit bias and, you know, the way that implicit bias just operates outside of the conscious, con our consciousness, right? And so our Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion offers implicit bias trainings to anybody on our campus. And um, so that's just one of many things I think that a lot of our departments and our offices can undertake. Um, but also I really like this idea too of color bravery. I have not heard, I did mm -hmm. not hear of that either prior to our conversation. And I think finding others who are color brave is also really important. Like finding, uh, identifying other people on your campus who are also color brave. Um, again, to kind of build that collective power and action and, and love on the campus. Um, yeah, just wanted to mention that. It's so true and so helpful. There's always power in numbers. So if we can work together and, and really, like I said, open mind, open heart, open eyes, like we can get a lot done, but we have to be able to work together and hear each other in order to make it happen. I've had people ask me, well, how do I do something about an unconscious bias if I don't even know I have it, right? <laughs> the thing is, if you act on it and someone is kind enough to point it out to you, be willing to hear them. So now we're, it's no longer unconscious. Now it's conscious. So now we can act on it. And I think people don't always understand either how the bias is even developed, right? Like it's something within our brain and the way our brain is structured. It's like, it's helping us out in a sense. Um, we, we have so many bits of information. I can't remember. It's, it's something crazy. The amount, it might something millions or billions of bits of information that are coming at us at, at once. And our brains can only consciously process such a minute amount of that information that comes in. So our brains have evolved to help us survive by automatically filtering that information that seems familiar. And that's kind of how the biases are created. It's like that pre-existing pre knowledge structure that happens. So, or shortcuts, I like to think of it, it's almost like a shortcut, but sometimes our shortcuts are not put in the right boxes. So we have to very intentionally and cognitively make those changes. And that's a growth process. That's not gonna happen unless we're willing to go there, right? So we have to be willing to go there. And I always tell my people too, uncomfortable, not spidey sense uncomfortable, but just being uncomfortable, uncomfortable always hangs out with growth. You know, Brene Brown talks about um, courage. Courage is always there hanging out with vulnerability. Well uncomfortable hangs out with growth. So if you find yourself feeling kind of uncomfortable, ask yourself, okay, why? What's going on? What am I learning? What's happening here? And then hopefully that what is uncomfortable at that moment will become more comfortable for you as you exercise it. But it's a good thing. Yeah, that's right. And I like thinking of it like um, growing your muscles, right? Like a, a muscle that you need to develop. Like it, I think so many times people who are trying to become more color braver uh, get really frustrated because it doesn't happen or you get defensive 
right? And just shut it down without like having a little compassion for yourself and realizing like where you are in that process, but then also looking at it like this is not going to happen overnight. And like you just keep using that muscle um, and and strengthening it. <laughs> um, but I also, I was, I wanted to ask too about before we close here about, I know you're going to touch on this in the SELA workshop, but self-care. And what does that mean? Like, what role does that mean? And what does that mean when we say self-care? It's such a large, you know, overused word. But mm -hmm. I'm curious to know how you're going to, without giving too much away, like how you're going to approach it in the, the Selah workshop that will be here on campus. So I always like to start talking to people about self-care by talking to them about their joy. So I always say, you know, joy is an emotion just like every other emotion. And when we feed it, it grows. But you people don't typically very consciously go in and say, I'm feeding my joy today. And I'm like, why not? We feed our anxiety. Why can't we feed our joy? So when you can find things that you truly love doing and it feeds your joy, then you immediately are already partaking in some self-care. And self-care can look like a ton of different things for different people. It really just depends on who you are. Some people feel like if I can just go sit outside in nature for 20 minutes, I'm good. And that's self-care. Where somebody else might say, oh no, I need to go to the gym <laughs> for an hour and that's my self-care. It could be yoga. It might be you taking some time and just writing down something in your gratitude journal. So self-care is very unique to the individual, but it's all about you being able to find ways to allow your mind, body, and soul to heal. And ultimately that's going to happen through you feeding your joy. Because those things that you're doing for your um, self-care are things hopefully that you do enjoy. So we're feeding it. I have this concept I use with my clients and I call it a box of joy. And I say, you know how Michael's and um, what's the other one? Hobby Lobby, they have those pretty boxes and they just pretty for no reason. Like for real, like what are we gonna do with that? They're just pretty. I'm like go pick one that really draws your attention. And I want you to fill it with at least 10 things that as soon as you see it, it makes you smile. And I've had clients use their grandfather's tie that still smelled of his cologne or a baseball that their, dog, their dad caught for them when they were at the Dodgers game. Like just little things. It might be a letter that, you know, their brother or sister wrote to them when they first left for college. Whatever it is, pick 10 of them, put them in that box. So whenever you feel like you need to feed your joy, you might just be having one of those days. You can go in your room, you can open up your pretty box and you can take out whatever you need to and just feed your joy. So. I love the box of joy. I feel like that works for anyone. I love that. I, I love that idea of a pretty box. <laughs> I'm going to go get a pretty box. Go get one and make sure you yeah. fill it. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess we'll wrap up a little bit, but I do want, um, yeah, I'm wondering if you could talk about how students could access your organization, whether through CELA, they can sign up through the emails that we'll send out, but also if they're interested in becoming a client or reaching out for, um, for other services, yeah, how students can interact with your organization. So easy. Our website is just strengthloveandmotivation.com. Um, we have a very easy email. It's strengthloveandmotivation at gmail.com. Um, we're on Instagram. I think I'm not good at all the different handles, but I think it's just at Strength Love Motivation. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook. So if you want to find us, if you just Google Strength Love and Motivation, you definitely will. Um, but for the students here at FNM, please sign up for Selah. Like I think you will thoroughly enjoy it. We'll have fun. And um, we can always stay connected afterwards if they would like to as well. 
but we're easy. We're easy to find. And I think we're a pleasure to work with. I have a pretty good team. I love them. We have fun together and we're always growing. So that's my thing. The six, we have six human emotional needs, right? And um, they, let's see if I can remember their growth, certainty, uncertainty, um, significance, growth, certainty, uncertainty, significance, contribution, and what's the sixth one? remember it. I know I can't remember the sixth one off the top of my head, but of them for me, it's growth. If I find myself feeling stagnant, I, I have to do something. I have to be able to grow in some capacity. So whatever we do, we're going to have some kind of component in it where growth is going to be involved. That's bothering me. I can't think of the sixth one. I was going to say food, but I think that's wrong. <laughs> Hold on. I Music. It's uh, amazing. We'll get back to us on that. I definitely um, will. Well, um, it's just been a real pleasure talking to you. I wanted to quickly also say for the three sessions that we'll have this spring in the spring semester, what are the themes for each, each session? So I, one of the, we will find out for sure after the students kind of give us back their input, but they have a lot of different options that they can choose from. So self-care is definitely on there. Stress management was on there. Um, talking more in depth about the microaggressions and the microinterventions is an option. Speaking about bias, the unconscious and the conscious is an option. Speaking about dissonance is an option. We do this thing where we talk about um, the color of dissonance and we go through the different situations and how that kind of shows up. Um, we also talk about post-traumatic slave syndrome and how that shows up in our lives too. So there's a lot of different themes that we can utilize, but I did email a bunch of them over so that y'all could talk to some of your student groups and see what they find interesting. Um, so whatever they, I'm open. <laughs> like that's the other thing too. We want to meet the needs of the student and that's why we developed it. So we do have core topics that we can definitely incorporate, but ultimately we like to leave it up to the students because they know best what their needs are. So if they are open enough to share and say, this is something that's going on. I really would like to talk about it. Then we will. Love and connection. That was the other one. So certainty, uncertainty, significance, love and connection, growth and contribution. And all humans on some level have these six human emotional needs. You are so welcome. Thank you all. Yeah, thank you. This was great. And yeah, I'm really excited for the students to have this opportunity. And really, like I said, just grateful for the peer health educators and Hermela, especially for connecting FNM to strength, love, motivation. I think it's it's just great. And I, I'm so happy to start my Friday talking about this. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way to kick off the weekend. It's exciting. Thank you, ladies. Y'all are awesome. Thank y'all for doing what you're doing for your students. And that's why I say we know things are changing because you can see we have people like y'all and y'all are in there making moves. So I thank you and appreciate you very much. Hey, oh, this is great. Is there anything, Amanda, that we didn't ask that you think that the students should hear as part of this recording for their benefit? I, not that I can think of. The only thing okay. I would want them to really hear, though, is <clears throat> they have to know that they are not alone. They may feel like it, but they are so not alone. And there are definitely people out there who not only feel the way that they do, but are willing to engage with them to help them so that they can feel better and work with them through their journey. 
So I don't want anyone to sit in their dorm or apartment and just feel like they're all alone because you're not just reach out. There's going to be someone there who's there to help you and can hear you and um, just help you. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a great conversation. It was, you know, it, it is such a nice start to the day to talk. Like yeah. sometimes I forget that we're even recording and I just want to talk about these things because they're so yeah. important. So yeah. What were some of your takeaways from our conversation with Amanda? I think just the way that she started off by talking about this um, this experience of a lot of our students of color on campus who feel like they're constantly under a microscope and how while you're on campus, unless you're in a space where it feels safe to you, it's just constantly there. And it's, it's creating so much stress on top of all the other stressors that our college students have, right? So that was one thing. And then I, and um, the other part I'm going to use going forward is her discussion on microinterventions. I had not been aware of that term either. I learned a lot from Amanda today. Um, but the microinterventions of like how we always think big, like, oh, how are we going to fix this, right? This, this big, big problem on our campus. Um, but really kind of also not like, ignoring the importance of those little day-to-day interactions are the complete opposite of microaggressions, right? Like, um, what are the little things that you can do to support our students of color um, on our campus? So definitely going to, definitely going to think about that one. Yeah. And for me, I said this during, during our conversation, but it really struck me when she said that it's just me feeling like I'm alone, I'm isolated, I'm experiencing all these things that really resonated with me that I think we all, or at least most of us acknowledge that racism exists and that there's an impact, but how that really feels. And when you don't have spaces to talk about it or people to support you through some of those effects that can be so isolating and so it just really struck me the importance of the work that strength love and motivation does especially on college campuses um so that um i also yeah the micro interventions and thinking about you know that we're talking today about this um group that we're holding throughout the semester for students of color and i think that is really important and also just the work of, of that white people can do around anti-racism and this piece of micro interventions. Amanda talked about how if you're experiencing microaggressions on a repetitive basis, it can be hard to be the one to have to make that micro inter- intervention. So I think we've started these conversations at FNM of of what we can all do. So not just people who are Mm-hmm. you know, the most marginalized, but pe- people with privilege, like people like us or s- students on this campus um, can do. And and I, li- I like that idea that it can be small things that add up. So those are two mm-hmm. of my takeaways. And I'm just, I'm really excited. Yeah. Yeah, I am too. I am. Um, I wanted to quickly add that for students who are listening to this, and they do want to engage in more of that. And this will be obviously a group session that we'll be will be having and hosting over the next few months. But for those students who also want to work on things individually or just have a space where they can share their own private information, um, and uh, the student wellness center is for whatever reason, is just not a place that you feel comfortable going to. I would like to encourage students to reach out to me. Um, so we can identify uh, therapists who might be 
a good match for you. And um, I think Amanda's practice is it's in Harrisburg, but, and I believe she has three or four uh, black therapists that are working for her. Um, so that's a great resource. And there are other places like that. I can help students locate them. And I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic has been um, doing more telehealth uh, therapy services from if you have the space to do it, right? Because that's another challenge is like not having the actual physical space where you can engage in therapy. But even if that's an issue for students, I would it would be great if they could reach out and we can try to figure out a solution to like to that. Is there a place that they can go where they'll be in private and they'll be able to engage in a session with somebody? Um, and if financial worries are a concern around co-payments, again, like that's what I do as the care coordinator. So I just, if you don't even know where to start, I would, I would like to invite students to email me. I'll put my contact information in the description of this, this, this episode. So we can, we can figure it out. Um, uh, and we'll just keep hopefully making progress in this area in general on our campus around supporting the mental health needs of our students of color. Yep. And as always, we'll put resources in the description with everything Susan talked about, as well as counseling services, which is available for all students who are struggling with their mental health and is a good starting point. And like Susan said, also her office. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. Yay. Bye. Bye.